Welcome to episode four of Breakout Culture and our last one before we take a break for the summer. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Today we're going to be welcoming two guests to talk about music and cinema, but because this is our last episode before the summer break, we're also bringing you a bit of a roundup of fun things to do this summer. As Ed never ceases to point out, my obsession is stately homes because there's such glorious places to visit packed with art and history and most with spectacular gardens. Of course, sadly, most of them have been shut during lockdown. But now the National Trust is cautiously opening several of its properties. Petworth House in Sussex, Barrington Court in Somerset, Kingston Lacey in Dorset, Lyme in Cheshire, Oxborough Hall in Norfolk, the Argyre in County Armagh and Packwood House in Warwickshire. Details of how to book are on the National Trust website and we'll put all those details up on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Well, that will keep Charlotte busy for the summer. Of course, she won't pay because she'll be staying <laughs> as a guest to the families. But we've also <laughs> discovered that there are several festivals happening. They're not exactly on the scale of wilderness or WOMAD, but from the end of August, there are going to be one or two that have managed to find a way around social distancing. One is a pop-up music festival at Gisborne Park in Lancashire. Then they're using beach umbrellas to keep people in socially distanced bubbles, the mind boggles. And then a red rooster, the Cajun Blues and Country Festival in Suffolk, is going ahead at the beginning of September. Now, in terms of theatre, though the government has announced theatres can open from the 1st of August, it's obviously going to take a while for theatres to work out how to make ends meet if they can't play to full houses. We think just about the first play to open might be on the 11th of August when the musical Fanny and Stella opens at the New Garden Theatre at Kennington's The Eagle. Then there's Sleepless, a musical romance which is set to open at Troubadour Wembley Park Theatre from the 25th of August. And Machine de Cirque, full of daredevil acrobats, will open on the 8th of September at the Peacock. But what I'm really super excited about is that from August, my favourite place in the world for an evening out, Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, is staging concert versions of Jesus Christ Superstar through till September. And I'm glad to say I've already got my tickets. Are you taking me? <laughs> well, I might. I might. I have a spare ticket. You'll have to be bloody nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think I can't remember if Jesus Christ Superstar was first performed at my old school, St. Paul's, or whether that was Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. But anyway, cinemas are allowed to open on the 4th of July in England, and Odeon was among the first out of the starting blocks with 10 sites across the country from Durham to Bournemouth. There was a plan to open another 88, but that hasn't happened because of the lack of new material. Anyway, we'll be talking to Ben Roberts in a minute, the chief executive of the British Film Institute, to find out a bit more about what's going on in cinema. So before we talk about cinema, we wanted to tell you about a very interesting initiative. As our regular listeners will know, we recently had June Sarpong on this podcast telling us about her extraordinary achievements as head of creative diversity at the BBC. Well, it looks as if the music industry at large is in for a similar shake-up and being held to task over just how diverse and inclusive it really is. Now, Ed is a trustee of London Music Masters and he's going to introduce us to the man behind the initiative, Ed. Hello, Charlotte. I'm going to introduce <laughs> you to Rob Dediran, who is the... Chief Executive of London Music Masters, which is a wonderful charity that I became a trustee of a couple of years ago, but it's been around for 12 years. And what it does is it teaches kids in London primary schools uh, how to play the violin, and they learn in group classes. And it really is an inspirational charity because it brings opportunities to many kids who would never get opportunities like this uh, normally, and it transforms 
their prospects. I think music education has a massive impact on kids' self-esteem. It leaks out into their academic achievements. And I certainly think we've seen a few uh, graduates, as it were, of the London Music Masters program go on to become semi-professional or even professional musicians. I was lucky enough to host them in the House of Commons when I was an MP. They did an impromptu concert in Westminster Hall. It was magical. But I've gone on too long. Rob, welcome to the podcast and please tell us a bit more about London Music Masters. Thank Hello, you. Hello, Rob. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Ed. Um, really good to be chatting with you. Um, Ed, you did a great job there. You've clearly been reading the memos. That was a lovely um, summary of, of London Music Masters. Um, I think that's a slight dig at the fact that I never read the papers before a board meeting. <laughs> Not at all. Um, you know, there's such a massive need in London. London is an incredibly well-served city when it comes to culture, but lots of our children and young people just can't access it for reasons which are, you know, then it's not their fault. So London Music Masters and charities like us exist to try and bridge that gap. And, you know, we're really interested in um, helping children to become the creators of culture rather than just absorbing it. You know, we want them to be making the music of tomorrow rather than just being in the audience. And so to do that, they've got to develop great skills and we're passionate about that. Rob, can you tell us about the new I'm In tool you've just launched? I know a lot of music organisations are already signing up to it. Yes, absolutely. So I'm In is the Inclusive Music Index and it arose really because, you know, a few years ago I was a young chief exec at London Music Masters and I was like, how on earth do I make this organisation more inclusive? It's a brilliant organisation, it's got a great ethos, um, but we could definitely be more inclusive and, and engage with diversity better. So I brought together um, 30 or so colleagues from across the sector and essentially we asked the question, you know, what would it look like if the music industry was more diverse, if our organisations were more inclusive and we reflected better the society that we live in? So together we put together what essentially is like a really big questionnaire um, which challenges uh, music leaders on issues of diversity and inclusion within their organisations. So we're asking questions like, um, you know, what motivates your company when it comes to diversity? And the purpose behind this structure is to try and get those difficult conversations going within music organisations to help them uncover and understand some of the complexities around the lack of diversity within the sector. And that's then the starting point for putting things right. We've tried to make it as easy as possible because we know how busy everyone is. Um, but uh, there's an online platform um, and people answer those questions within a team within their organisation. Um, and they answer those questions and they have to upload evidence as well. So it's no good just saying, you know, we're fantastic at diversity, give us top marks. If you're scoring yourself really highly, then evidence will be required to support that. And then once all of that's done, um, it's uploaded onto our system and an independent assessor looks at it and then comes back to the organisation with a full report and they do a workshop with the team to help them take those next steps to really embed change within their structures. But are these organisations that already, as it were, mature in the sense that they are working with professional musicians or are they organisations like London Music Masters, which are working with kids who are learning their craft? Well, we wanted it to go out to everybody, really, because we're all part of the same ecosystem. So um, we're working, yes, with education organisations, but also with orchestras and opera venues and, you know, music networks. Because th the thing about this is that it, it is all connected. There's no point just sorting out the education piece if you haven't got things further down the pipeline sorted as well. And do you think people will act on these findings? I mean, in some ways, it's quite exposing for them to kind of uh, audit themselves in this way. But in other respects, it's also a sort of um, 
get out of jail free card to a certain extent. Some organisations might just say, well, we've d- done the audit, we've done our bit and then rest on their laurels or not, as the case may be. But uh, will they actually affect real change? Well, I mean, that's what we're going to find out. So I think it's brave of organisations to step up and say, we haven't got this sorted. We want to do something about it. And so we require the people who participate to, to, to talk publicly about that and to, you know, to own up to the fact that we could all do better. But my hope as well is that funders and um, you know, audiences will start demanding this change and demanding that when people engage with tools like I'm in and you know, other things which are out there, that they start to see results. You know, these results will come, but yes, it requires commitment it requires resource it requires energy um, and we've got to be in it for the long term you know the problems that we're trying to tackle have been around within the music industry for decades if not centuries it's not going to be solved overnight well i hope that you're right and that there is an urgent uh, need for change i do think um you know we interviewed um chichi wanoku on this podcast talking about chineke which i think has become a sort of beacon uh, of change and shown the need for change uh, and I hope that we're not going to carry on with another five years of pe- people paying lip service to change, but nothing really uh, fundamentally altering. Well, the, and you're right. I and, mean, you know, you've probably had this conversation, um, Ed, over many, many decades, many, many. Um, and I, I am that old. I am that old. <laughs> um, <laughs> I started it in the 19th century. <laughs> Um, but, but the point is that this has been talked about ad nauseum and there just hasn't been enough change. Uh, and our assessment of that is that we've been asking the wrong questions or we've been looking at the questions in a very surface level. Diversity is complex. And so we have to get down to, you know, frankly, the boring stuff, the nitty gritty around, you know, where you're spending your money, how you're hiring people, um, how your literature talks about you, um, you know, the things about structure and policy and process, which aren't glamorous and aren't exciting. But actually, that's where change happens. This is about organisational change, not simply paying, as you say, lip service to an issue which happens to be fashionable at the moment. Well, I think there is such a big appetite for it at the moment. I mean, you just have to look at the what, you know, the number one bestseller at the moment is Renault Edo Lodge's book, which is all about systemic change and how racism is so embedded in the system and it and it does need rooting out and what you said about audiences being ready for it i think they really are and i think they will be challenging people to do something about it so so just for our listeners if you are say a small independent record company or something like that and you decide to sign up for this audit what what do you have to do rob so you can sign up right now go to londonmusicmasters.org forward slash i'm in um and uh there's a fabulous page there which has all the information you need and a massive sign up button which you can click on um we're we're full for the summer cohort but we have places open for our autumn cohort um and we've got some amazing organizations who are taking part i've been really impressed by the spread. So organisations from right across the UK, um, ranging in income from, you know, £70,000 turnover to, you know, 30 plus million. So we're talking about the full spectrum of of music organisations in the UK, which is very exciting um, because everyone has a part to play. Well, that's fantastic. And we'll obviously put all the details of how to sign up on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Thank you, Rob. That was really fascinating. Thank you so much. Really great to speak with you. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Charlotte. So now back to movies and our next guest is Ben Roberts, the Chief Executive of the British Film Institute. Ben joined the Institute in 2012 as Director of the Film Fund and was one of the key architects in launching the BFI Diversity Standards. In 2018, he was promoted to Deputy CEO and he became the Chief Executive last December. 
a role perhaps he's not had too much time to get his teeth into, given that lockdown came along only a few months later. It's been a meteoric rise for the man whose first job was an usher in the Showcase Theatre in Coventry. But we're very glad to have you with us today. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Ed. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hello. And we're so interested to have you with us today, Ben, as I was reading about your daunting remit as CEO of the BFI this morning. And one of the things you're in charge of is ensuring that film is recognised as one of the fastest growing industries in the UK. And obviously, lockdown must have drastically hampered all of that. So we're very eager to know what's going on in the world of British cinema and when film production can really get up and running again. Yes. So I should start by saying, even though I was appointed in December. I started in February, middle of February, so actually only about three weeks before the world was turned on its head. And um, in in particular, in relation to your question about production, I mean, production just came to a, a global halt. The UK is a, a huge global production hub. And obviously, we've got a brilliant indigenous independent sector here in the UK, but we're also a magnet for in particular, the Hollywood studios who shoot an incredible number of movies here in our in our in our studios and across the UK. One notable example being the latest Jurassic Park, Jurassic World film, which I think. Gosh, where was that being shot? That was at Pinewood, yeah. and I think it had probably done. I think it had probably done a couple of weeks and then stop. In terms of numbers, I think in a in any given quarter. We expect, um, you know, production spend in the UK. Well, for a year, it's about three point six four billion pounds a year at the moment. And so, in the first quarter of this year, I think only thirty five million pounds worth of production spend was actually spent. So, a kind of crashing halt. Um, and we've been spending the last few months working with with government to make sure that uh, as soon as as soon as productions could start again, they were able to start again. There were a number of factors there. One was how do you deal with social distancing on a on a major film set? Um, and maybe that's something we can talk about, or the kind of complexities there. Um, and then there were some quarantine issues as well about getting um, movie stars and, and big directors here ready to start shooting in these work. So we were working with government on both those particular issues so the studios could get back up and running. And Jurassic World has restarted. I think it started a couple of weeks ago. Um, Tom Cruise was waiting in the wings to start shooting two Mission Impossible films back to back. And they, I I think they restarted the same week as uh, Jurassic World. So basically, as soon as the quarantine exemptions were in place, uh, they were both ready to go. There's a bigger challenge for the indies who um, I think are going to struggle more with the cost of getting back up and running again. Gosh. I mean, I know there was you that Britain had some very exciting films that were meant to be premiering in lockdown. We all know about James Bond being delayed, but what, when can you tell us about any other British films and when might they hit our screens? Well, Bond was the big premiere that got pushed. So they were, I think they were the first to blink with covid and actually very sensible i think i mean when when if you think back when we all thought you know lockdown might last for two weeks or certainly that's what i thought we'll just take a quick break um (laughs) and bond a bond pushed in march i think and moved all the way to november and everyone thought that was very dramatic i mean actually i think that's proven to be a very sensible decision to really kind of push all the way into the sort of christmas break because we've what we've seen now is that a couple of films, notably Christopher Nolan's Tenet, when cinemas were opening on July the 4th and Tenet was 
initially scheduled to open two weeks later, that all felt like it might just about work out and Tenet and Nolan would be the, you know, the saviours of cinema and you really need a big film like that to get audiences back on mass. Uh, now, as you as you'll know, you know it's 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 pushed a couple of times, and and this week, Warner Brothers have announced that they're delaying it indefinitely. Although I think I, I'm pretty sure they have got a plan, and um, it will be it will be sort of it's a 2020 release date that it's going to have, um, and that's of course because even though cinemas can now reopen in the UK, uh, the US is a mess, and I think it's. It's it's not yet the the preference of the studios to release their of their major films internationally without being able to release in the US at the same time. But yeah, I think there's still a lot of unknowns, and cinemas are delaying their openings until they can be sure that a major release is is going to be there to bring the audiences back. So who knows? I mean, we as an independent cinema on the South Bank have set our op- reopening for September the 1st. Lots of other independent cinemas are planning to reopen around the same time with programmes that are not dependent on the major studios' release schedules. So we could be in a position where we're actually opening around the same time or before a lot of the circuits have reopened their doors, which was not something I expected when we were looking at September as a cautious opening date. Mm. I'd say the biggest blow for me has been the delay of the release of Top Gun 2. Right. <laughs> and it's left me in a complete uh, yeah. defiance. Because, well, yeah. um, because you model yourself <laughs> on cruise. Well, I met, Tom, I, met, I met Tom Cruise <laughs> at a BAFTA dinner when I was the film minister years and years ago. And uh, we got on well enough that he arranged a screening, not only of his brilliant Jack Reacher film, uh, but also of Top Gun, because it turns out that Top Gun is, an amaz- is a f- favourite of my wife's. So I had this fancy, and I can tell, tell you and Charlotte, because my wife never listens to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, I had this fantasy, this is a significant year for my wife, that uh, I would do a screening of Top Gun 2, a surprise screening of Top Gun 2. And all my uh, romantic uh. plans have um, gone by the wayside, but I'm glad to know that Tom is in the country so I can look him up. and maybe Look him t- up. Take Lock him, out him up. I mean, listen. If he maybe call in a favour or two, I mean, the film's yeah. finished. Maybe they can just give, <laughs> slip, slip, slip you a DVD. That's an extremely good idea. But it is a terrible cliche. But I'll ask it anyway, Ben. That um, you know, we have got all uh, used to kind of uh, watching a lot of movies on Netflix, and there's this constant tension between uh, the over-the-top providers and the theatres, as it were, the cinema theatres, in terms of the window. Is that going to break? that uh, unwritten understanding or is it is it going to flip back to normal? I mean, I've been quite clear that my preference is that it should. The, sh- the studios have always benefited from having, a, you know, a number of goes at the cherry. And, um, and I think they will still want to do that where they can. Although obviously the fact that the studios are for the most part all developing their own streaming platforms suggests that maybe those sort of multiple bytes will no longer be quite so important to them because they will just sort of own the content and they can they, and, and and also own all the and all the revenue and they'll be want to be delivering more movies to their streaming platforms 
I would imagine as soon as possible so their streaming platforms are the ones that you want to subscribe to. But I mean, obviously it's already broken. Um, I think that the window is... I think the window will survive for theatrical releases, but I think it will shorten. I mean, I am not a sort of standard film audience because I have very sort of I have very high capacity but I have watched 106 films during lockdown yeah. and wow. they are all you know all over the shop in terms of what we've been watching and what platforms we've been watching them on so everything from um you know, actually not much Netflix stuff to be honest with you but everything from the sort of the main streamers through to uh, movie BFI player and I I have seen our own player um rocket in terms of traffic to it for library titles new films that we've been putting straight onto there i mean we've at least doubled our subscriber base to player during lockdown and i think that for independence and for the cultural sector there's a wake-up call rather late wake-up call let's be honest to the potential in digital so we'll i mean as part of my the so time as CEO, I'll be absolutely investing in uh, sort of digital platforms. And do you think that's a sort of permanent shift? I mean, obviously, none of us are going out in the evening. Um, so we have time. I mean, I couldn't quite get up to your, your 160 films. And I never understand how any BAFTA judge gets through the reams of DVDs that they get sent in the run up to the BAFTAs. But uh, when people start, start, start returning to normal life, do you think they will abandon the kind of online players that they've got used to kind of being their companions on a Saturday evening? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, there's definitely a challenge for cinemas because cinemas have to bring audiences back. Audiences have to feel safe. Um, they have to be up for spending some money. And I think one of the biggest challenges we've got is we've all got very used to not spending much money. And I, I wonder what that is going to do for everyone's um, sense and expectation of value for money. So I think, you know, I think the cinema experience has always been incredibly good value for money. I wonder whether whether audiences will make even tougher decisions about what they consider to be a value for money film. I think that event cinema, and event cinema to me is tenor parasite bait, depending on what, depending on what your um, tastes are and what you are. So I think that the, the, the idea that there is a sort of water cooler film or something that sort of hits the zeitgeist or where there's sort of a need to watch it whilst everyone else is watching it will be the distinction between yeah. streamers and, exactly. and, and cinemas. Bond being a prime example. Bond, exactly. One of the things I think is really interesting about cinema is of all the the places you can go out to it's the one that seems to have least changed as a format i think that in cinemas i mean the circuits were investing a lot in their estates so uh, i mean they weren't all but some of them were, were investing quite a lot in sort of the in into more of a luxe experience so that without putting the ticket price up too much that yeah. idea of value for money was um was there I mean, I've, I've been to a couple of cinemas here and in the States in the last year or so where, you know, the quality of the seat and the space around you in the seat, it has been, been kind of extraordinary. And I think that 
a number of the circuits are, are really investing so that audiences can differentiate between uh, going out and having a really brilliant experience for 15 quid, which still is not very much compared to so many other sort of cultural activities you can do for a night and, you know, sitting on your sofa and watching something on a small screen. So, I, I mean, I don't, think the, I don't think the model needs a sort of radical shift. Um, I just think that it needs to be really high quality. You know, the sound needs to be amazing. The picture needs to be great. I think there's a ritualism to going to the cinema, which is really, really well developed. And I think people like that. I mean, I like that. You know, there's a, you go, th- you pass through the doors, you get your popcorn, you sit down, you know, there's going to be some ads, there's some trailers, the film starts. You know, it's quite, it's quite a developed ritual. And I think, I think people will or some people at least will crave that i agree i love all that i love the ads and the trailers and the popcorn i love all that i hate it when i miss it i think where innovation might happen in physical venues is pop-ups community cinemas um you know smaller venues there's a there's going to be a lot of work being done around high street regeneration town regeneration how are you getting young people involved in culture so there's going to be quite a lot of public money to develop um a, a, you know a, a new a new offer for for different communities and i'm really interested in community-led programming and community-led cinema because that's where i think diversity happens you sound very positive about the future despite everything ben i know God, I mean, I might be completely overstating it. No, I do. Actually, actually, Charlotte, you're such a pessimist. I do. I do feel positive. I think that actually, and I'm positive as someone who is loving lockdown. By the way, I mean lockdown suits me down to a T. So, and I, I still look forward to the things that I do. I mean, we've all got things that we do. So, I don't go to the football, but I've got lots of friends that do, and they will want to be in a stadium again with their tribe. And I will want to be back in a cinema with people who love watching a film collectively and being surprised by it. I mean, the last version of that that I had was Parasite at the Picture House Central. And it was, like I say, it was proper event cinema. Like, you just can't replicate that. Thank you so much, Ben. What a fantastic place to end on. Okay, thank you. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. That's all for this week. We'll be back in the autumn with eight brand new episodes when we hope lots more will be open to report on. Charlotte and I have really enjoyed doing these podcasts and we're really delighted so many of you have become regular listeners. Shout out to the Benenden Old Girls. And while we're taking a break, you can keep up with all things cultural by signing up to the What's On by Country and Townhouse weekly newsletter at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter. See you in September. And have a wonderful summer. And when you're sitting by the pool, you can listen to all our past episodes. What could be more fun? Enjoy it. Take care.